Welcome to another ABI podcast. My name is Lois Lupica, and I'm a professor of law at the University of Maine School of Law and the resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I am joined today by two guests, Dennis Levine of Dennis Levine & Associates in Tampa, Florida, and Rich Thompson of Clark & Washington in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, we are going to be discussing two cases that the Supreme Court has recently accepted cert in. Both cases present very similar facts and raise the same issue. So the two cases are the Bank of America versus Colquette and the Bank of America versus Toledo Cardona. And the issue presented in both of these cases is whether Section 506D permits a Chapter 7 debtor to strip off a junior mortgage entirely when the outstanding debt owed to a senior lien holder exceeds the current value of the collateral. So these are the lien strip cases. So let me start by asking Dennis, can you give me the statutory argument for reversal? How do you read 506D in light of 506A? I think it's interesting from the, um, the debtor's cert brief in, filed in this case uh, says that with regard to 506, the text of the statute is clear. And the fact of the matter is the text of the statute is really not clear. And when you go back to the Dusnup decision, which I think is the basis for the Supreme Court analyzing the case, uh, there was uh, widespread discussion about the effect of 506A and 506D. Eight of the nine justices read it one way. Justice Scalia read it another way. Um, I look at Dusnup and what they said about those two sections, and they sort of teach the following, which is one, liens pass through bankruptcy unaffected, and two, parties bargain for a lien which would stay with the property until foreclosure, and three, that any increase in value of the property would accrue to the benefit of the creditor and not to the debtor or the other unsecured creditors. And these principles, I think, are the same whether the mortgage is partially underwater or fully underwater. Uh, Dusnup was concerned about, you know, reaping windfalls and noted that two of the contrary circuit cases at the time, uh, the mortgages were just slightly underwater. And uh, I also look at the big picture here, which uh, I don't think anybody has really argued, which is what is Section 5 of the Bankruptcy Code focused on? You know, we're, focus- we're talking about 506 specifically, but Section 5, uh, which contains 506, is entitled Creditors, the Debtor, and the Estate. Mm-hmm. And Subsection 1, where Section 506 is included, is entitled Creditors and Claims. And it deals with filing claims, allowance of claims, administrative expenses, priorities, effective distribution outside bankruptcy, claims of co-debtors, subordination of claims, payment of interest on tax claims. The section has everything to do with claims and sorting out the priorities of claims, make, uh, priority of creditors who are making claims to money that's you know, being distributed. So uh, if you look at 506A and 506D, I think you have to take a step back and say, what's the purpose of the statute? And the and Dusnup, the Supreme Court, you know, read it a certain way and said you, you read them differently, that they're not 
5060 is not self-effectuating. And uh, so that's where I think that, you know, the statutory um, issue has already been decided in Dusnup. And I think the 11th Circuit and McNeil indicated that that would appear to be the case, but they distinguished Dusnup from these instant cases. And that's why they relied on the prior panel of Follendor and said Follendor was not overruled by Dusnup, and therefore we're going to rely on that. And that says you can strip a wholly underwater second mortgage. So, Rich, how do you respond to that reading? Um, is your position supported by the language of the statute? Oh, I absolutely think so. Um, and Dusna points this out. The statute says that the lien survives if, there's, if it meets two conditions. Um, the underlying claim has to be allowed, and the lien has to be secured by property in which the estate has an interest. So if there's if those conditions aren't both met, then the lien doesn't survive. There was a case under the Bankruptcy Act called Simonson v. Grandquist, where the Supreme Court disallowed <clears throat> excuse me, I got a head cold disallowed a priority tax lien because the underlying tax claims were for penalties that were not allowable against the bankruptcy estate. And that's that's one example of where the condition both conditions weren't met in our case the claims just not secured the 11th circuit and many other um, appellate courts have held that wholly unsecured mortgages are, do not have secured claims and so a strict reading of the statute and, and consistently with Dusnip says that you can strip a wholly unsecured claim so if the court confirms the 11th circuit is it a reversal of Doosnip, or can you read Doosnip consistently with an affirmance? Um, you know, after all, Doosnip only involved one mortgage. So, is it controlling precedent in your view, Dennis? Uh, my, my, my view, as I said before, is I think that it is controlling precedent. And uh, just as an aside, because Rich mentioned about allowed secured claims. We have to talk about what's the meaning of an allowed secured claim in the context of a no-asset Chapter 7 case, which is what most of these cases are, including the Colquette case. You know, in McNeil, the court simply states it's undisputed that uh, the creditor's claim is allowed. Um, and in Follendor, there's actually the SBA filed a claim, and a lot of the opinion was focused on whether a secure claim had to first be disallowed before it could be stripped, and whether 502 had to be implicated. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's I don't think it's that simple. But going to your question, no, I don't think that uh, Dusnup and McNeil uh, can be reconciled, and I think that's why the Supreme Court has taken the case up because even in the McNeil case, they indicated that while it seems that Dusnup would control the result. They distinguished it again because of partial equity versus no equity. And because this is a Chapter 7 case, uh, again, I think that Dusnup and McNeil and the cases before the Supreme Court, Colquette, cannot be reconciled. So if the court decides to affirm
firm uh, call Ket, uh, I'm not really sure what that means. Rich, do you agree with that? No, I, <clears throat> I don't. The, um, first of all, Duesner, um the court went out of its way to say, we're limiting this decision and this holding on the facts of this case. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the debtors had dragged the creditor through the courts for about 15 years before Duesner reached the Supreme Court through several different bankruptcies. Mm-hmm. So the facts of that case were bad to begin with. Second of all, the McNeil case argues that it is absolutely consistent with Duesner. Again, you have two conditions for a lien to survive. The underlying claim has to be allowed, and it has to be secured by property in which the estate has an interest. Mm-hmm. Um, the purpose for 506 is to promote the bankruptcy rule of rateable distribution, which is centuries old, and it goes back to 1572 and the statute of 13 Elizabeth in England. Um, when we adopted the American bankruptcy laws, we based them on, on the English bankruptcy laws. And under the rule of rateable distribution, liens, wholly unsecured liens, did not pass through bankruptcy. They did not survive. The rule of rateable distribution requires that a secured creditor, when they file a claim against the estate, has to deduct the value of their lien from their claim. Mm-hmm. So the secured creditor could either totally ignore the bankruptcy proceeding and just rely on its lien. They could file the claim, deduct the value of the lien uh, first, and only file a claim for the difference. Or if the claim, even though they had a lien, if they filed a claim for the entire amount of their debt, then their lien was forfeited. It was waived. And that's that's the statutory basis under the, the rule of rateable distribution that 506 was based upon. Mm-hmm. Lois, I, I think that Rich's point actually, of talking about the policy of, of rateable distribution, actually supports the creditor's view. Okay. Because rateable distribution involves actually distributing assets and money from the estate by the debtor or the estate. Mm-hmm. The reason that cha- this case is different is it's a Chapter 7 case. You know, we do see the effect of 506 in Chapter 11 cases and in Chapter 13 cases. But mm-hmm. in those cases in Chapter 11, creditors get to vote. So if the debtor proposes to strip a lien, the creditor has a vote. So the creditor has some authority, and it affects his claim and distribution through the plan. The same is true in a Chapter 13 case. Well, creditors this don't vote different. in a Chapter 13 case. Right. Creditors they, they don't, don't vote in a but, but, but That's true, but creditors do get to object to the plan on the basis of good faith, uh-huh. which is, in essence, a kind of a vote. In Chapter 7, on the other hand, particularly in a no-asset case, restrictions in Florida, the, the notice that goes out to creditors tells you don't file a claim. So assume you have a Chapter 7 case, nobody files a claim, the trust no distribution, that case would ordinarily get closed. Um, the, the policy of radical distribution never comes into play, and that's why I think that's a, that's a red herring in respect to Chapter 7 cases. That's, that's only in no-asset Chapter 7 cases. Well, even in an asset Chapter 7 case, if you were distributing $5,000 from a bank account, and if the creditor, if the 
secure creditor filed a claim, certainly in that context, the trustee could file an objection to the claim on the basis of 506, and that would affect the distribution to the creditors. I don't see any reason that the debtor would file an objection to the creditor's claim, you know, absent 100% distribution, and even then, I think the creditor still goes before the debtor. Well, um, let's go back to um, what you were saying about Chapter 13 cases. So in in Nobleman and Johnson, um, the the court adopted the... um, the analysis or started the analysis by looking at 506A to determine uh, the extent to which the junior lien had value and then held that a valueless lien um, is is related to an unsecured claim and in the context of Chapter 13 is subject to modification in 1322. And you and correct me if I'm misstating what you just said, but you said that the protection for the creditor is to object to the plan on the basis of good faith. Well, couldn't a creditor do the same in a Chapter 7 case, object to um, the debtor's uh, behavior, uh, actions on the basis of lack of good faith? I think the answer is no. I think, you know, that Chapter 7 for for debtors, you know, the creditor generally doesn't get to object and say you're a bad debtor you shouldn't get a discharge unless they've done something specifically in violation of section 523 or section 727 or they're not eligible to be a debtor that's one of the mm-hmm. big benefits that the bankruptcy code gives to chapter um, seven debtors but going back to your question you know i read nobleman and really nobleman is not a 506 case at all there's no analysis of section 506 in, in the entire case it's really a case about 1322b2, mm-hmm. and it's a case, a case about rights versus claims. And of course, in 1322b2, the code says you can't, a plan can't affect the rights of a secured creditor who's secured by a principal residence. And in that way, the secured mortgage creditor still has rights. And in fact, Nobleman cited Dusnip for the proposition that a mortgage holder retaining certain rights that were bargained for by the mortgage or the mortgagee um, are, are important rights. That includes the right to foreclose. And that's sort of what people forget in this analysis is, while there may not be any equity as you examine the, the, mor- the second mortgage in Colquette today, it doesn't mean that the mortgage creditor couldn't foreclose. And you may say, as a practical matter, why would a wholly underwater secured creditor foreclose, Mm -hmm. and the answer is they may decide to do it for their own reasons, but that's what the Supreme Court in Duzna recognized is there's this foreclosure lien right, and I'm not sure why that should be wiped out. Uh, So Nobleman, I don't think, is on point at all. Uh, If the Supreme Court in Nobleman had used the analysis by the debtors in Colquette, that a wholly underwater second mortgage is really not a secure claim at all, and the result in Nobleman, seems to me, would have been completely different. Mm-hmm. Rich, is that consistent with your reading of Nobleman and Johnson? I agree with Nobleman. I agree that Nobleman is a 1322 anti-modification clause mm-hmm. case. 
Um, but it does stand for the proposition that a wholly unsecured creditor is not a, does not have a secured claim in a bankruptcy estate. And the 11th Circuit um, confirmed that in the Tanner case. Mm-hmm. Um, so to the extent that the nobleman also deals with creditors' rights, whereas 506 deals with liens and claims. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are different things. Yeah. The other case you mentioned, I'm sorry, was Johnson versus Home State Bank. Yes. And in that case, um, you know, personal liability was discharged in a prior seven, and then the debtor refiled a 13 and wanted to affect the rights of the uh, of, of the of the creditor, the secure creditor held a mortgage, mm-hmm. and the Supreme Court said that the surviving mortgage holder had a claim, even though it wasn't necessarily secured, yeah. because they had in-rem rights. They didn't have any in-personum rights, so it could be treated in the Chapter 13 case. And there was no reference at all to Section 506 in the, in the Johnson case. And that, that was a matter of, uh, did the creditor, could the debtor fund a claim against property of the estate uh, and cure and maintain under the, the long-term um, mortgage provision. Mm-hmm. But Johnson, Johnson is what really gives rise to the lien strip in the Chapter 20 cases, mm-hmm. because the courts recognize that even though the personal liability has been discharged, there still is a secured claim against property of the estate, and um, but you can strip that claim if there's no equity in the property um, for it to attach to. But, but remember, Johnson is a Chapter 13 case, not a Chapter 7 case. Yes, well, yes, yes, I understand that. But Johnson is the is the, was a Chapter 20 case, as I recall. Yeah, and, and 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 it's based on Johnson that the Chapter 20 lien strips have become so prevalent across the country. Mm-hmm. Dennis, do you think there should be a distinction made in bankruptcy? Um, about how first mortgage leaners and second mortgage leaners are treated? I think the answer is no. I don't see anything in the code that talks about uh, distinctions between holders of first mortgages and second mortgages. And in fact, um, most of the provisions of the code talk about uh, creditors secured by a lien on principal residence. Mm-hmm. Or in Section 524J, which is an exception to the discharge, refers to a creditor with a security interest in a residence. So, you know, it doesn't make a distinction between a first and a second uh, mortgage. And the same in 1322B2. You can't modify the holder of a claim secured by a debtor's principal residence. So the impact on second mortgages there is that there's, in most courts, if there's a dollar of equity, and it's a mortgage secured solely by a lien on the principal residence, you can't modify that in a Chapter 13 case. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're a secured creditor, you're a secured creditor. And with regard to Section 506, if you're a secured creditor and you're looking to get distribution from the estate, then I think in a Chapter 7 case, I think 506 is applicable, and, and only in that situation. Mm-hmm. And I think I think a reading of 522 probably supports that whether you're first or second isn't all that important because 
in the 522 lien strips, you have, in many jurisdictions, you have your choice of which judgment lien you're going to strip off first from, from the homestead. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't go by priority. Well, don't junior leaners bargain for their subordinate position and realize at the time of lending that they could end up underwater? And doesn't the cost of the second lien reflect this realization? And isn't that an argument for somewhat different treatment in bankruptcy? You know, recently, a lot of these second mortgages are lending, at least, you know, in, the, in before the bubble burst, were lending knowing that they didn't have a secured position, that they were starting out underwater. Then I think they used the, the tranches by selling off these tranches of securitized loans, pass along those costs to other entities, make the loans more um, agreeable to the debtors. So uh, at least recent history shows they really didn't care about their position. You know, in the Colquette case, um, the property was purchased in 2006, right before the bubble burst. Mm -hmm. And the second mortgage and the first mortgage totaled 100% of the purchase price. So in that case, when they gave the second mortgage, the uh, the bank didn't think they were underwater, but they thought there was enough equity to protect them and that you know real estate would continue to appreciate in value and they'd be further protected. But to, to your point, uh, certainly when you get a second mortgage, the interest rate is higher than the first mortgage because of the risk of default and getting foreclosed. But mm-hmm. I don't think that anybody in the mortgage business has been contemplating you know, the possibility of bankruptcies and stripping and taking those things into account when they, when they price them. And certainly, I don't think that the practical effect of that has an effect on what the statute says and what the purpose of Chapter 7 is. Do you agree with that, Rich? That, that banks I, don't price in bankruptcy? Second I, I don't agree with that. I think that when a sophisticated lender extends credit, they take into account all of the different risks that they're exposing themselves to, and they build in um, interest rates and charges to protect their position. And do you think that um, business judgment exercised should affect the outcome of these cases? In other words, do you think that um, that policy argument should have sway? You know, under a technical legal approach, I would say no, but yeah. no. It, it's a political system. And any time that... When, when I first started talking about McNeil, mm-hmm. you know, the reaction I used to get from people was, but there's so much money involved, they'll never go along with that. And, um, you know, I think that's probably a pretty good prediction that there's, there's just too much money involved and that the politics will, will probably have lead to McNeil being overturned. Um, so assume this with me, that the, the um, 
court affirms the Eleventh Circuit. Dennis, if this happens, what do you think will be the impact on the mortgage market? Well, because you're dealing with national lenders for the most part, Mm -hmm. uh, it's really unclear to say what the impact would be because uh, I I just, I I really can't speculate on what the impact would be. Certainly, I would, you would think that lenders making second mortgage loans are going to recognize that there is more risk to their mortgages a day after the Supreme Court would affirm McNeil, and I guess by implication, you know, overrule Dusnup with regard to these Chapter Seven, you know, no equity mortgage properties, than they were the day before, and mm-hmm. you would think that they would factor that into, this, you know, their 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 decisions to make loans, and of course, you know, talking about political effects. Uh, there's a lot of uh, noise in the press about uh, banks being criticized for not lending people money. But on the other hand, you could have a decision like you know, the McNeil case in Colquette being affirmed by the Supreme Court, which would, I think, by any sophisticated review of, of someone with a financial background, would say that's an additional risk that banks need to consider and is probably a reason why they shouldn't loan money to people who have credit challenges right now, mm-hmm. which is contrary to what you know a lot of policymakers say is banks should be making more loans now. You know, one thing that's interesting with the, the practical effect of McNeil is that routinely, and I would say in 98% of our cases with lien stripping, the second mortgage never comes into contested. They just roll over. And that's whether it's a Chapter 13 or a Chapter 20 or a Chapter 7. What do you mean by they that? They just don't appear. They don't? So they, they, so just, they, they just don't contest the motions. Mm-hmm. They just roll over. They don't even, they don't even appear in court. And, and, of course, Rich, that brings up what I call, you know, the practical effect of all this. And, it's a very interesting um, intellectual exercise to talk about allowed claims in Section 506A and 506D, but you know, the reality is what's the difference if you're a second mortgage holder and your lien gets stripped or your lien doesn't get stripped you know, a year after the bankruptcy case? The first mortgage, if you're way underwater, the first mortgage holder is going to foreclose and you're going to get wiped out anyway. And I think, and I think, you know, I look at that akin to reaffirmation agreements. And there's a lot of pages of the bankruptcy code that are related to reaffirmation agreements, and a lot of case law. But whether a reaffirmation agreement, if signed by the debtor, actually benefits the creditor or not, I'm not sure. And the same here, where I'm not really sure how stripping the lien benefit of, a, of an underwater second mortgage actually benefits the um, benefits the debtor. But I, I do want to say, Lois, I have to tip my hat to Bank of America for their dogged determination in the 11th Circuit to get this issue to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And l- let's not forget that the, the 11th Circuit you know, knew from the get-go that there was a lot of criticism of the McNeil case 
there was a lot of uh, pressure by the parties in that case to have en banc consideration. I'm not sure why it took the 11th Circuit almost two years to decide that they didn't want to consider it en banc. But, of course, once they made that decision, then the Supreme Court accepted cert in in Colquette. So, obviously, mm-hmm. Bank of America must think that this makes a big difference. Um, I also will note that there's a case called River E. Plaza LLC from the 7th Circuit, and Judge Posner said, quote, the fewer rights the creditors have in the event of default, the higher interest rates will be to compensate creditors for the increased risk of loss. So um, Judge Posner is a much uh, smarter guy than me, and he said that in the case. I'm not sure where the evidentiary support of was that, for that, but at least that's what Judge Posner said. And I also want to point to uh, Judge Posner's uh, decision in uh, the Palomar case, which is Seventh Circuit case in 2013, which is one of the three circuit cases that supports the creditor's position mm-hmm. in the Colquette matter. Yep. And he, he spends a lot of time in, uh, in, in that talking about the practical effects. And again, I, I like to quote really smart people. So at the end of the decision, he, he says, quote, so all that failing to extinguish the creditor's lien does from a practical standpoint is deprive the, deprive the debtors of the chance to make some money should the value of their home ever exceed the balance of the creditor's first mortgage. It's hard to see how the deprivation of so speculative a future opportunity could be thought to impair the debtor's ability to make a fresh start. The extinction of the lien would not enable them to obtain a new second mortgage or otherwise improve their financial situation. So I think uh, Judge Posner's pointing to what I talk about, which is assuming that the McNeil case is affirmed through Colquette, and everybody in these Chapter 7 cases starts filing motions to strip liens on these underwater mortgages or argue and litigate whether the mortgages are underwater or not, what's the practical benefit the debtor. How does that enhance the debtor's fresh start from the creditor's perspective? I think that gives the debtor a head start if the property appreciates after the bankruptcy case. And that's well at uh, bottom why, why, why I think that the views up view of 506 and, um, and mortgages is going to rule the day. Well, I think that there's too much emphasis on the return of the real estate market and properties skyrocketing, value skyrocketing again. Um, you know, as the court said in Follendor, it's really not a windfall to the debtor. All they're getting is the opportunity to eventually purchase some equity back in the property. I have lots of clients that are in Chapter 7 cases that if they could not strip the second mortgage, they would walk away from the property and let it be foreclosed and go start over in a new property where the debt equals the the amount of the value of the property, where they're starting out even. So one of the consequences is if you can't strip off that second mortgage, then the first mortgage is probably going to be eating that property. So it does have effects. And if there's benefits to both the debtor and there's a benefit to the mortgage industry. So 
Um, Rich, do you uh, disagree with Dennis's observation that this is not really a big deal? Do you, do you see this as an important issue um, affecting your clients? Um, as far as individual debtors go, it is a big deal. Mm-hmm. It is a big deal. Maybe on a, a national economic scale it's not, but, you know, my job is, you know, one case per, you know, it's every individual case, and it's a very big deal to the individuals because people will walk away from the property yeah. if they can't relieve the, the pressures from that second mortgage. And the second mortgages are typically the more aggressive and the least likely to work with the client. Yeah, I was just going to ask, um, Rich, in your experience, have the presence of um, second mortgages been a stumbling block to debtors' recovery? Um, Nationally, people have said that they impede negotiation with the senior lender, lead more people to file for bankruptcy who otherwise may have been able to resolve their issues without bankruptcy. Have you seen that? I think that, again, the second mortgages are, are more aggressive. They're quicker to foreclose. You know, they don't let the loan be in default for as long as the first mortgage will. Uh-huh. They're less likely to work out modifications uh, because they want to protect their position from the first mortgage. Um, they're typically, they are the much more aggressive, the more difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. And, and Lois, yeah. this is Dennis, yeah. that may be the case. But from the second mortgage holders that I represent, they're running out to foreclose mortgages on properties where there's, you know, at present no equity. And I don't, I don't see that as a, as a rampant problem. With regard to, you know, the I'm sorry, they, the they are running out to foreclose or they're not running they, they, out? They, 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 are not, they, they are not running out to foreclose I see. on properties where it does not appear to be equity because of the cost of the foreclosure. But again, it, it gets down, in my view, to in a Chapter 7 case, what's the purpose of Chapter 7 with regard to the balance between debtors and creditors mm-hmm. and the fact that it uh, an underwater second mortgage makes it easier for a debtor to you know retain their home, if that is a policy that Congress wants to support, then I think the bankruptcy code should reflect that. But I don't think the bankruptcy code does reflect that. And just the opposite, I think the bankruptcy code in several places talks about the special protections for mortgages that encumber principal residences. Mm-hmm. And you see that in Chapter 13 cases, and you see that in other situations. So to me, I think the bankruptcy code uh, was looking out for the uh, the mortgage industry with where they make mortgage loans on principal residences, whether it's a first or a second, I don't think makes a difference. Um, so what has been the practical effect on the 11th Circuit um, since the circuit court's ruling? Um, have uh, people have been rushing to, have, have debtors been rushing to reopen cases um, in order to strip off the second lien? We haven't done a lot of reopening here in, in Atlanta. At least my firm hasn't. Uh-huh. Um, I, I've heard anecdotally that in Florida it's pretty routine where they're going back years to reopen cases to, to strip off second mortgage. 
and this is Dennis. I, I actually have been litigating that in, in a number of courts uh, recently at a uh, bar conference. The Middle District of Florida bankruptcy judges uh, said that they've adopted a rule of thumb where if a bankruptcy case has been closed for more than one year, they will not reopen the case mm-hmm. to afford relief that McNeil know, present to the debtors. And of course, you know, that's an unwritten rule of thumb that I'm not sure where in the code or the rules that that's based. But we have seen a, a significant increase in that. And of course, it raises lots of issues, uh, such as, you know, when do you value the, 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 the property, you know, at the time the bankruptcy case was filed, or when you're trying to reopen and strip it, you know, two years later. Right. And I think as Rich has pointed out, you've got the issue of when a Chapter 7 case is closed and the property is deemed abandoned back to the debtor, if they reopen the case, the property is not property of the estate or property the estate has any interest in. So theoretically, you could argue that the court would have no jurisdiction to strip the lien. Right, and and some courts have um, ruled that they can revoke that technical abandonment, but then Rule 9024 would apply where you're seeking relief from an order or a judgment. And so then you have all the equitable defenses that would be available. And I think that's probably where that one-year rule of thumb probably finds its origins in in middle districts of Florida. Mm -hmm. So, Rich... Do you think the court, the Supreme Court, should have taken this case? Now, after all, only one circuit, the 11th, have said, has said yes to strip off. Three have said no, the 4th, 6th, and the 7th, as you pointed out. And eight circuits haven't decided this issue. Should this have been left to the lower courts to further percolate? Um, you know, I think it probably was time for, for the Supreme Court to take it. The um, the 11th Circuit, Stonewalled and Stonewalled, there were dozens of cases where the requests for the issue be t- to be heard in bank. They, they denied each one of them. I probably had 18 of them myself, hmm. um, all with Bank of America. And, um, you know, the, the McNeil decision originally was an unpublished decision. Mm-hmm. It was only published after we asked the court, you know, after we kept running into a bunch of... Um, opposition from bankruptcy judges that weren't willing to follow an unpublished decision that they felt went against Duesnip. And so we eventually asked the the 11th Circuit to at least publish McNeil, and and they finally did. But from there, the 11th Circuit's just dug in its heels and said, we're not going anyplace, we're not going to do anything further with this. Um, The issue went up once already to the Supreme Court, I think the Supreme Court was waiting to hear whether or not the 11th Circuit was going to take it in bank, mm-hmm. so they denied cert. The 11th Circuit continued to deny rehearing in bank, and I think the Supreme Court said, well, now it's time to do something. Yeah. Uh, it does affect a lot of households. Um, there is a lot of money at stake, and you know we keep hearing about the need for, for uniform bankruptcy laws, um, I think this issue is important enough that that we need to have the Supreme Court decide it. Mm-hmm. D- Dennis, do you agree? Yes, I. Uh, in the brief that was filed against CERT, uh, 
the debtors' lawyers, you know, talk about this very issue about the the courts have taken this case on cert, so other circuits uh, could develop law on it. But it, it, and they also talk about how the facts were not very well formed in in Colquette. But I think that that again is a red herring because facts of these cases are, you know, not that complicated. You right. have a second mortgage. And everybody admits that the value of the is less than what the first mortgage is owed. So, you know, developing the facts, I don't think, makes a difference. And with regard to other circuits, you know, it seems to me you have a clear circuit split. You have three circuit court opinions who have looked at this issue uh, on whether or not the Chapter 7 debtor can, you know, avoid the lien of a holy underwater, you know, second mortgage, mm-hmm. and have all said no in pretty clear and convincing ways. I think the 11th Circuit decision in McNeil is an outlier. I'm interested to see whether the Supreme Court makes any mention of the analysis by the 11th Circuit relying on its prior precedent rule of a prior panel that Follendor came before Dusnup. Yeah. And how the 11th Circuit sort of unilaterally decided that, you know, Newsnup did not overrule Follendor, and therefore they were essentially going to ignore uh, what I see as the holding of Newsnup and distinguish it. And I think that's where the Supreme Court is going to focus, and they're going to say, you know, very clearly that Newsnup was the final word on this issue. Dennis, your prediction um, as to how the Supreme Court will rule on this case? My prediction is that that they're going to uh, af- uh, basically affirm what they said in Dusnup and say that a Chapter 7 uh, debtor cannot strip a wholly unsecured mortgage lien. Uh, I think that if Dusnup, Justice Scalia dissented because of his statutory construction view, uh, and I think Justice Scalia was probably the only person who thought that the statute was clear. Um, but I think that's where it's going to come down. Okay. Uh, Rich, what do you think? I'm thinking that politically it will come down and say you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they really did strict construction, that, that they would uphold McNeil. Okay, well, we will um, have to wait to see if you gentlemen are correct. Um, But thank you so much for joining me today. Um, It has been a very interesting discussion. The issues are complicated, and um, we just now have to await to see uh, what the Supreme Court does with the facts of these two cases. So thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. This is Lois Lupica, and this is another ABI podcast. Thank you for listening. Mm